Well, we are getting to the getting close to the end of our series on Romans, uh, courtroom to the living room, and uh, we have been uh, in this book since October in this Bible study series. And uh, I, I hope that it's, it's you've, you've learned some things, you've been encouraged, and uh, you've grown as we've studied the, this this letter to this church in Rome together. And in fact. I'll show you a section here. That really was Paul's heart when he wrote this uh, letter originally, that the church in Rome would be strengthened and encouraged. And um, uh, we're in this section, actually in these, these last two weekends, <clears throat> that uh, you, you'll, you'll notice the language in uh, chapters 15 and 16, sort of winding down, Paul's wrapping up his letter, and you'll get a strong sense of that as we take a sneak peek into chapter 16 uh, this, this weekend. Um, but if, if you remember, if you were here last week, we're in this section uh, from Romans 12 to Romans, about end of Romans 15, where Paul is in this section where he's talking about what it means to live with a renewed mind. Uh, he said, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And in, in this, those first two verses of chapter 12, he talks about not letting your thinking be formed by the way our world thinks but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, meaning that you used to live a way when you uh, were outside of Christ, but now you're in the kingdom of God and uh, there, are, there are new ways to live. We don't just import uh, the old culture into the new kingdom uh, because that's not how we do things here. Uh, and so we're in this section in Romans 12, 13, 14, 15 where Paul is teaching us of what it means to have a renewed mind. Uh, or as Susan Garlinger put it uh, when she spoke on that chapter, what it means to live a life upside down, upside down thinking as compared uh, to those who don't know Christ. And last week we were in uh, Romans 14 and answering the question, how do I treat those who, th who think differently? How do I relate to those who think differently than I do on the disputable matters? And if you remember, if you were here last weekend, uh, there was this, this idea, the Gentiles in Rome were avoiding, uh, or were eating meat and drinking wine. The Jews were avoiding the meat and the wine for various reasons. And Paul was, was trying to get them to, uh, to accept each other. So he talks about uh, people who are weak in faith, uh, not weak in their understanding of God or their pursuit of God, but, uh, but they're weak in their faith in, in regards to these, these uh, freedoms, and uh, he called them sort of like no people. You got weak in faith, no people. And then you have strong in faith, yes people. Paul throws his name in, in this group as we pick it up in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. And he's saying that, uh, you know, if you're a yes person, I mean, this relates to us very well. Uh, you're a yes person. You, you, can't, you can't ridicule the person who says no. And if you're a no person, uh, you, you can't judge the spirituality of the person who says yes in regards to these disputable matters. And what you need to do is stop arguing about who's right and accept each other. And, uh, and yet, even in those differences, uh, know why you have come to the convictions that you have come to. You need to have thought this through because one day you will stand before Jesus, you'll kneel before him, and you will give a personal account for your life. Um, and, and then Paul then go on to speak more directly to those who are strong in faith, who are the yes people, and say, hey, um, uh, don't cause someone to stumble. Don't put a stumbling block in, in one of your brothers or sisters in Christ who are saying no. Uh, don't put a stumbling block in front of them. And we made a, an important distinction of what a stumbling block is. A stumbling block isn't just something that you say no to. A stumbling block is something that someone might trip over and it would cause the work of God in them to be torn apart or to be ruined. 
Meaning that just because you don't agree with someone else who's in Christ on a disputable matter doesn't mean you get to play the stumbling block card and then hide your judgmental or critical spirit behind it. That, that's not a stumbling block, which is why we need to accept each other. A stumbling block is something that might cause someone to, to their faith to be ruined or to walk away from Christ. And so it's an important distinction as, as we learn to live in this living room. Now, we've got all these people who are, who, who are you know, solid on the non-negotiables, but we get in the living room and realize that we all have different histories. We have different convictions on these things the Bible is silent on, and the temptation is, is to add our voice to what we think the Bible should say. The goal is unity, harmony. It's not uniformity. We don't all try and sing the same note. We take all of our, our convictions and add them together and make great music uh, together as we love one another, even though we might disagree on these matters um, that we would, we would term disputable. Now today, we're gonna capture uh, Romans 15, verse 14 to the end of the chapter, take a sneak peek into Romans 16. And, uh, but, but in order to understand this, we really need to reset the context, and some of this might be a little bit of a reminder for you, uh, because we looked at this uh, early on in our study to know what was happening. What was the larger story in the book of Romans? So if you go to Romans chapter one, uh, we're gonna piece together here uh, what, what's been happening. Uh, Romans 1, 8 uh, Paul is writing and he says, let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night, I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. Now, now in these next verses, uh, what Paul is going to do is he's going he's to show his motive in writing the letter. He's going to give us four motives in writing the letter. Uh, and again, this is a bit of review. One, one of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. Uh, for I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift. That's motive number one. I want to bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, here's motive number two, I want to encourage you in your faith. And then here's motive number three. But I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want to know, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. And here's motive number four. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I have seen among other Gentiles. That's the motive of Paul's writing in this letter. My hope is that as we've gone through this letter, you too have felt strengthened in your faith, you've been encouraged, I've been encouraged, and that there, there might have been a harvest. And by the way, when we started our series in October. If you go October 1 through this weekend, 117 people through the ministries of Salem Alliance Church have gone from the courtroom to the living room. And uh, we just praise God for that, that, uh, that so many people are coming alive uh, in Christ. And, and Paul, he's not done in, in sharing the good news of the gospel. So here's what, what I want to do is I want to take Romans 1, verse 13, and if you were to sort of cut and paste and pull out the, the heart of Romans, pull out the center of Romans, take Romans 1, 13, and then connect it to Romans chapter 15, verses 23 and 24, you, like an unbroken sentence, this is how it reads, and it gives us some context here. It says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among the Gentiles. That's chapter 1, verse 13. Now, dot, 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 chapter 15, 
But now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome. After, and after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. Paul's not shy. He's got a plan for their life, right? <laughs> well, that, that's the movement of what's happening here. Paul, uh, re- remember Paul was this church persecutor. Church persecutor, he's on the road to Damascus and he's going because he's going to go to Damascus and persecute more Christians. As he's on the road, he has an encounter with the risen Christ and he goes from church persecutor to church planter. And in fact, uh, where he starts out is in this, in this uh, city called Antioch. He's with a guy named, his sidekick is Barnabas. They're in Antioch. Barnabas kind of gets them over there, and they're worshiping in this, in this community, this community where, where people who follow Jesus were first called Christians, meaning little Christ. Like, wow, you, you look like Jesus. You're like a little Jesus. Um, that's, that's where the name Christian first arose, was in the city of Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, and then Paul and others, went out from Antioch and traveled all through that, that area of Turkey and Greece and up the, that area up there. It's the, today it's the Balkan Peninsula. It's where Albania, Bulgaria, uh, Bosnia, that, that area there, where those, uh, right up, kind of uh, to, the, to the east of Italy. Um, Paul's planting churches there as well, and uh, that, that's the area that we'll, we'll, we'll read here in a second in Romans 15. It's called Illyricum. Uh, that's that shaded area on the map. Paul has gone from Jerusalem to Antioch, all through Turkey, all through Greece. He's, all, he's gone up that Balkan Peninsula, and, um, and he's planted churches everywhere. In fact, pretty much there are sustainable churches now that are proclaiming the good news. And he's not going to hang up his Bible somewhere and go start learning how to play golf. Uh, he, he's not done. Because he's, he's, pretty, he's pretty intense on living out the call God has laid on his life. So his call means for him, preaching the good news of the gospel to people, to Gentiles specifically, who have never heard. Go to places that they've never heard about Jesus. So he has his eyes set on Spain. He wants to go there. But here's the problem. Antioch, if you'll remember, Antioch is his home church. Well, that's a long way from Spain. So he, has, he needs a new home church. He's a mature sending church that he can call home now that's closer to Spain. And that's why he's writing to this church in Rome. So he wants Rome to be his new church. And from there, even though he's never been there before, he, he's saying, I want you to provide for me because I want you to be my new sending church, my new partner church. And from there, I want to go to Spain. And I'm going to preach the gospel in Spain because they've never heard the name Jesus. That's where I'm headed. That's the context for the whole book of Romans. That's, that's what's happening behind the scenes. And Paul, before he's going to go to Rome, he's got one little errand left to run. He, he wants to go back to Jerusalem because all through Turkey and Greece, he's been taking this offering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And, uh, and he's, he's really doing a masterful, beautiful thing here. He's taking offerings in Gentile churches, and he's going to take these offerings back to Jerusalem and give them, uh, give this money to the poor Christians in Jerusalem, uh, Jewish believers. What he's doing here is he's forging Jewish-Gentile unity. Uh, it, it, he's, it's, it's brilliant on his part. And what he's telling the Gentile churches is, hey, 
you owe, you owe a lot to these Jewish Christians because it's from them, these first believers in Christ, that the message of the gospel went out and you're alive in Christ. You've gone from the courtroom to the living room because of these faithful believers and they're poor and we need to help them. It's the least we can do. And so that's why Paul, before he goes to Rome, is gonna go back to Jerusalem and then he'll go to Rome. Well, at least that's what he thought because he runs into a little bit of trouble in Jerusalem. In fact, he gets arrested, and he ends up going to Rome uh, years later, but he ends up going as a prisoner. And uh, that, that, that really is the story behind what's happening here in the, in the book of Romans. So what I want to do is I want to read uh, the, the end of chapter 15. So if, if you've got your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 15, verse 14, and you're going to hear all this. I wanted you to see it first. Now you're going to hear it. And, um, and it's, it's a pretty big chunk I'm going to read, so you stay seated. And if you'd follow along as I read, uh, that would be, that'd be great. Romans 15, verse 14. I am fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach each other all about them. Let me just pause there for a second, because that really is a picture of a mature church. You have knowledge, you know you're full of goodness, and you, you know you have this knowledge, and you can teach others. Rome, you, you're, you're, you're a mature church. Verse 15, even so, I have been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is this reminder. For by God's grace, I am a special, special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. He's using temple language there to, to say what he's done. In. Uh, verse 17, so I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles uh, to bringing the Gentiles to God by my message. And by the, way, I, by the way, I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I've been following the plans spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I've been preaching in these places. But now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome." And after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles receive the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. As soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. 
And I am sure that when I come, Christ will richly bless our time together. Now, Paul, in the, in the end of 15 there, he's going to talk about, now here's how you can pray for me as I do this. Um, but but that, that's really the heart of what's happening here in Romans 15, and hopefully you had a chance to put those dots together as you saw those pictures on the screen. Now, this week there is something very significant happening uh, in our country, um, maybe not so significant for some of you, but for those who like to watch the NFL, it's the NFL draft this week. Um, some of you are like, who gives a rip? Uh, others are like, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, NFL draft is that one time a year where the best of the best of college players uh, put their name in for the draft and they're hoping that they're going to be picked for, a, for a, a professional football team. And there are multiple rounds of choices and uh, whoever is picked first in round one is, is really kind of famous and by the way they also end up signing a lucrative contract. They're going to make a lot of money and really anyone in that first round is, is going is to do pretty well financially. Anyone in the NFL is going to do pretty good financially. Uh, but but is it, this year, the first round, first pick, the word is out. It's, it's going to be a guy named Andrew Luck who played quarterback for Stanford. If you're a Colts fan, you're happy about that because you really need a quarterback. And, uh, but, but Luck will get cho- chosen first. But there's a, a, the guy who's probably going to go second, he actually won the Heisman Trophy. And uh, his, his name is uh, you know, Robert Griffin III. That's a very cool name. And, uh, and he won the Heisman Trophy. And then you kind of start going through all the rounds and all and It takes days. I mean, they're making all these picks. And there's, I think this year there's 256 picks. And uh, years gone by, it's like 254, 255, somewhere in there. Um, but, uh, you know, going back to Robert Griffin III, he won the Heisman Trophy. Here's a picture of the Heisman Trophy uh, behind me. This is the trophy you get when you're the most valuable player in college football. You, you get all this, all the, all this acclaim, uh, all this fame, and this is a significant trophy that you get to win, the Heisman. In the NFL draft, when they get down to the very last pick, the last person in the NFL draft also gets a trophy. It's called the Lozman Trophy. It's sort of a spoof on the Heisman, all right? Uh, now, if you go back to the Heisman, uh, you see, see how the football is so carefully tucked and the arm is extended and they're warding, the, the guy's warding off the attackers who are going to come try and strip the ball? That's the Heisman. You're the MVP. The Lozman, you can't even hang on to the ball. You're fumbling it. You're dropping it. In fact, that last person who will be picked in the NFL draft uh, this next week, they'll get this trophy, and they will, they will be awarded a jersey with a title on the back of it. The title is Mr. Irrelevant, meaning no one's ever going to know you. You're never going to make it in the NFL. You're irrelevant. You're number 254. You're not the Heisman, you're the Lozman. You're Mr. Irrelevant. Now, ever felt like when you read stories in the Bible and you read stories about a guy named Paul who's like going all over the world and planting churches, that I mean, these, these guys, these, these men, these women, they're, they're sort of, they, they win the Heisman of, 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 of missions, of church. I mean, they, they're just these superheroes, I mean, you look at like a, a lady like Esther who stands up to a king and who, who risks her life and shows courage, and you wonder, man, could I ever take that risk? Could I express that kind of courage? Or, or maybe a guy like Peter who, you know, he has his ups and downs, but he, he really does stand up for Christ. And in fact, he, he will be crucified himself. He'll die for his faith. He's called Peter the Rock. And you compare your life to Peter, and you might think, I'm not Peter the Rock. I feel like I'm a little bit like Play-Doh. I'm pretty soft, squishy. 
and, and not very stable. And, and you, you look at stories like this, you get to the end of a letter like this in Romans, you go, I mean, that's Paul. He's, he's going all these places and doing all this stuff, and I, I, I'm, I'm no Paul. I, I kind of feel like the winner of the Lozman Trophy. And Paul's the Heisman, I'm the Lozman. I feel a little bit like Mr. Irrelevant or Mrs. Irrelevant or Miss Irrelevant. I mean, I'm a nobody. I, you'll never read my name in the pages of Scripture. You ever, ever felt that way? I, I know I have. As I've, like, I just don't know if I could ever do that. Well, here's the deal. That, yes, Paul, is, he has a unique gift. He has this, this call on his life to preach the gospel in places where Jesus has never been heard. And he possesses this, this holy ambition to do this no matter what is in his way. I mean, think about some of the stories. The guy, is, he's, had, he's had rocks thrown at him. He's been left for dead. He, uh, he's been whipped several times. Uh, he's been shipwrecked. He's been thrown in prison. It, it seems like you know, when he gets to a place like Malta, a poisonous snake comes, is attracted to him and bites him. If anything could go wrong, it happens to Paul. There's all this stuff that's happening. Yet he doesn't stop doing the things that God's called him to because of this holy ambition that he possesses. He just pushes right through it all. It doesn't mean there's no pain. It just means he's not stopping. He's not going to stop in this pursuit of preaching Christ to people who have never heard about him. And he possesses this, this holy ambition. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is that, that you and I, we're not Paul's. Maybe you have a, a, a church planting gift. Maybe you, there's an apostolic gift you have. And, and uh, I mean, but the reality is, is that we're not all church planters and we're not all going to go to these, these nations where people have never heard. Some will. You're not Paul, but you are who you are, and God has a call on your life as well. And my guess is that some of you in this room can identify your holy ambition. Or maybe you're here today and you're wondering, I don't know where I fit in. We'd love to help you discover that. Because once you understand the call on your life, and it's a call not to, to, to duplicate someone else's call, it's to live out the call that God's put on your life, to use the gifts, the spiritual gifts that God's given to you. You'll push through uh, obstacles, and you'll jump over hurdles, and, and you'll do the things that God's calling you to accomplish, and you don't need to be Paul. And uh, You may feel like a number. You may feel like a winner of a Lozman trophy, but you're not Mr. Irrelevant. You're not Mrs. Irrelevant or Miss Irrelevant. You're a son or daughter of the king, and God wants to use you. Bill Hybels uh, pastor of a church in Willow Creek Community Church in, uh, in Chicago area. Uh, several years ago, I heard, I heard him give this talk, and he was talking about this idea of a holy ambition. He called it a holy discontent. And uh, he, he was talking about this idea that, you know, when we see something that's wrong, or we see something that needs to be fixed, or we see a need that's, that's going unmet, that there's something in us that rises to this point where we feel like we just can't stand it anymore. We've got to do something about it. We've got to, we've got to get in there and, and help out and fix it. And, and sometimes the way we do it is not right. He, Hybels, uh, he, he talks about the story of Moses uh, in Exodus 2 where Moses is still in Pharaoh's household and Moses has taken a walk one day and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster brutally beating uh, an, a Hebrew slave. And Moses has one of those defining moments where he just, he just can't take it. 
He has to do something. So he jumps up and jumps in there and breaks up the fight and then goes overboard and then he starts beating on the Egyptian taskmaster. In fact, beats him to death, kills him. And then buries his body in the sand. Next day, he's walking along. He sees two Hebrew slaves fighting. He jumps in and to break up this fight and one of the slaves says to him, you're gonna kill me and bury me in the sand? And Moses realizes that his passion to, to rescue these Hebrew slaves has got him in the trouble. He better flee the country. He flees the country, and he's, he's wandering as a shepherd for 40 years, and the day comes when God is looking at his people, and he's hearing the cries. He's seeing the oppression, and God is wondering, who is out there that I could call to send down to Egypt to let my people go? And who does he tap? But a guy 40 years earlier who experienced that same sense of frustration where he just couldn't take it anymore, he couldn't stand it, he calls Moses, and that's a whole other story. Moses couldn't stand the fact that his people were being oppressed. Neither could God. So God tapped Moses on the shoulder and used him. Heibel then went and talked about this, uh, this cartoon that many of you, I think, grew up watching. How many of you watched Popeye when you were, when you were a kid? Or when you're not a kid, you're watching Popeye. Remember Popeye? Uh, Popeye the sailor man, uh, he was a unique individual. Uh, he, uh, he, would, uh, he would, there's all these characters in, in, that, in that show. There's, uh, uh, remember his girlfriend, uh, Olive Oil? Isn't Olive a great name? Olive is such a great name. Uh, Olive Oil was a strange woman, very pole-like and skinny and uh, had a funny laugh. And, uh, but that was Popeye's girlfriend. And then there was this guy who, uh, um, it's funny, because at five o'clock service last night, I called him Brutus, um, which is true. It's actually, his name is Brutus. A guy came up to me after the service and said, no, it's not Brutus, it's, it's Bluto. So for 6.30 service, I said, well, this, this enemy, his name is Bluto. Literally, the congregation said, no, it's not. And they stopped me in the middle of the sermon. It's Brutus. I'm all confused. So I, I, I went last night and checked it out. It started out as Bluto, and it became Brutus, okay? So you Popeye people who watch too much cartoons, uh, relax, okay? Brutus, who once was called Bluto, is sort of like the guy who, uh, you know, he has his eyes on olive oil as well. And then there's Wimpy, this guy who loves cheeseburgers. Uh, I don't know how he fit into the whole thing, but, uh, but Popeye would have these, these scenarios when he would see to where uh, he, would, he would begin to be vexed. He would begin to be frustrated. And he would say something and went like this. He would say, I just can't stands it. I just can't stands it no more. And what would Popeye do? He'd grab spinach. I mean, really, Spinach. The whole thing was a ploy with the spinach industry in America, right? And promoting spinach, because no one will eat it. Uh, well, Popeye, he gets his can of spinach, and uh, in miraculous ways, the, the can would open, and he would just like, he would just binge on spinach, and he would get this supernatural strength. He already had pretty bizarre forearms. They were big as they were. Then his biceps would get huge, and he would hold them up, and, and every once in a while in the cartoons, you see like a tugboat going by on his bicep. And he would be so strong, supernatural strength, and he would jump in, and he would take on whatever situation that was frustrating him that he just couldn't stand it. And I want to suggest to you that Paul, Paul if, if Paul had the Popeye syndrome, it would be, I just can't stand it when people don't know about who Jesus is. 
And you, you probably have something in your life where you just can't stand it. And that's where God takes you and the call that's on you, the gifts that are part of you, and he combines his spirit, and with supernatural strength, he uses you to advance the mission. So you don't have to be a Paul. You don't, feel like, you don't have to feel like the winner of the Lozman Trophy. You don't have to feel like you're just some number, last pick. No, God uses all people who surrender to him and through the empowerment of the Spirit, follow him and obey him. And as they do, the name of Jesus is honored. Now, I want to just do a little sneak peek into Romans chapter 16 here. Because Romans chapter 16 is a, a chapter in, in the book of Romans that maybe you'd be tempted just kind of like, okay, you got all these names I can't pronounce. Let's just kind of sweep by them real quick. But I want to suggest to you that while we all know the name of Paul, the names in Romans chapter 16 are no less significant. The temptation might be, well, these are just people who, you know, we'll never hear about again this side of glory. But the fact of the matter is that they were crucial because they were just as determined as they follow God's call in their life in advancing the mission. I mean, look at some of these. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church in Cancrea. She was a leader in a church. Some scholars think a pastor. Paul's in Corinth. He is dictating this letter. And Phoebe is the one who's going to carry the original letter from Corinth and deliver it to the church in Rome. It's a pretty important job, don't you think? Think about it. You, the Bible you have in your hands, that, that letter, Romans, is there because Phoebe who one day you will meet in glory, hand-carried it to the church in Rome. Big job. Aquila and Priscilla, you see their names in, in verse 3. The, these were co-workers in, in ministry. Remember how the Jews were evicted from Rome? Well, Aquila and Priscilla were evicted from Rome, and, uh, and then when, the, when they could come back, they came back. They're in this church now, and they were Paul's partner in ministry. And he says hello to them. And then verse 5, it says, Greet my dear friend Eponidas. He was the first person to become, uh, person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. And there's a story there. Eponidas, the first convert of Paul's ministry in Asia. And, uh, and Eponidas is now in Rome. The, the name literally, Eponidas, means praise or worship. He probably changed his name. And then you go over to uh, verse 12, Paul says, give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers. Maybe they were twins. Now think about it. Maybe they were twins. By the way, 24 names listed in this, in this chapter. Almost half of them are women. Um, and, and Paul hasn't even been to this city yet, yet he knows so many of them that are there. Rufus, verse 13, greet Rufus. Um, Mark chapter 15, verse 21, talks about the man who carried Jesus' cross. His name is Simon of Cyrene. In Mark's book, which, by the way, most scholars believe was dictated by Peter to Mark in Rome, Mark makes a special notation in chapter 15, verse 21, that Simon of Cyrene, the one who carried the cross of Christ, was the father of two boys, one named Alexander, one named Rufus. 
Wouldn't it be something if the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried Christ's cross is in this church in Rome and Paul's been talking to him? But my favorite in all these names is in verse 22. It says, I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings to as one of the Lord's followers. Paul would normally dictate his letters um, to someone who would write them. He had some, some eye issues, which is why in Galatians you read, see what's with large letters I write. He, he, he has some eye problems, and so he would dictate, and someone else would write. Tertius writes down Paul's words. Tertius, that name, that, that, that word means, literally means number three. The guy was a number. He didn't even have a name. I mean, he, he was probably a slave. He probably was used to hearing, you know, number three, clean up that mess. Number three, cook dinner. Number three, go mow the lawn. And he probably said, what's a, what's a mower? <laughs> yeah. Somehow, they cut the grass. Work with me. He was just a number. Maybe even felt like Mr. Irrelevant in a pretty important city like Rome, full of senators and important people. Probably the people of this city looked down on him. Just a number. But he wrote the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans. Maybe he simply had the gift of good penmanship. Yet God used him to write the book of Romans, which Phoebe would then hand carry to the church there, this letter, which then would, would capture the heart of a guy named Augustine, who would have a, a revival in his heart, and he would become the brightest theological mind of his day in the fourth century. And then that same letter, which would spark the Reformation, Martin Luther would, would say the just shall live by faith. He would understand justification, that we can't earn our position with Christ, it's a gift. This same letter that a guy in prison by the name of John Bunyan would write the second best-selling book in all of world history, second only to the Bible, he wrote the book called Pilgrim's Progress. All, all, that, all made possible because a guy who was just a number took notes. Look, Paul did some amazing things, and it may seem to us that he won the Heisman, but he's just like you and me. And you may feel like you're just a number. But God has a call on your life. What is it? What is it that you just can't stand? With God's spirit and your obedience, the mission advances. Would you pray with me, please? So, Lord, we want to say to you that we want to be a people who say yes. We want to be a people who know that, um, that our significance isn't in us being in the limelight. Our meaning in life comes from serving you and lifting you into the limelight. And so we want to say yes to you, whatever it is that you might call us to do, and we want your name to be exalted and glorified. It's in your name that we pray these things.